So you can have something that on paper is just like black and white. This is going to be successful. But if you don't execute it properly down to the restaurants, train them, get them to effectively get, understand its purpose, get behind it, it's not going to succeed, no matter how good it is. Hey guys, welcome to the Wine, Whiskey and Weed Show. Today I have a very special guest for you, Brian Phillips. Brian is one of the most important on-premise wine buyers in America. Today we discuss how wineries can tap into corporate restaurant chains and what they need to do, how it all works, and we also discuss some tips for sommeliers on how to increase restaurant wine sales. Just before we dive into the podcast, I have a very special announcement to make. The submission for 2020 Sommelier's Choice Awards is now open. If you are a wine brand, if you are a wine importer, if you are a winery looking to get traction in the on-premise US market, this is the time to enter your wines. This is where wines are judged by leading on-premise wine buyers, wine directors and sommeliers. Again, this is Sommelier's Choice Awards USA. So go to sommelierschoiceawards.com to learn more on how you can enter your wines there. Thank you. Enjoy the show. So, Brian, uh, let's just give our audience a little context here. I know who you are. You know, I just wanted them to understand uh, how big is Darden and what wine volumes are we talking here? Could you just create some context, please? Yeah. So Darden is multiple um, restaurant groups or concepts uh, spread throughout um, the U.S. And we do have a few international properties with some specific brands. Uh, But our focus, obviously, is uh, North America. Um, We have, um, you know, some concepts are quite small with uh, maybe 23 locations and some up into the over 900 locations. So we are talking um, over a thousand locations overall when we take all of our multiple brands together. Um, My focus being on the wine side uh, and delving into some of the higher end, more premium and exclusive spirit programming. Uh, is really with the Capital Grill, um, Eddie V's Prime Seafood, and Seasons 52, and delving a little bit into other concepts like Yard House and uh, Longhorn. Uh, of course, we are also known for uh, Olive Garden being our largest brand. However, because it's a little more of a, a static kind of program, I don't really delve into the, the Olive Garden world much. We have a dedicated team to that large brand. Mm-hmm. Um, Fantastic. Amazing. Yeah. Overall, wine purchases is quite high. I mean, we are the world's uh, largest full service uh, restaurant group, but there are much larger than us with the fast casual and so forth. But because we are, all of our concepts are really focused on the in-restaurant dining experience, uh, sit-down table service. We are the largest in that realm. We don't delve into a lot of to-go or delivery service uh, direction at this point. But that is a future direction as we know it's a growing business and how we can work beverage into that aspect as well as always on the forefront, but not yet a big part of what we do day to day. So ultimate business wise, we're we're in the nine plus billion dollar a year um, uh, revenue range. Um, and you're looking at about 18 to 20 percent of that year to year being beverage. Fantastic. Amazing. It's a it's a good person. I mean, I, I don't know exactly what sort of benchmark people go with. Like what what's a good number? Let's say if a restaurant is doing one million in uh, food and beverage sales. What percentage do you think is considered good for the wine and beverage? Yeah, you know, for uh, if you're a fine dining uh, establishment with a 
you know, wind forward program, you should be looking at close to a goal of 30%. So you're, you know, you're looking at about a $300,000 beverage program if you were a fine dining, sit down, especially if you're doing like wine pairing, pre-fee menus, things like that, and you have a full bar and, and cocktail program, that's that's a realistic number to hit if you're on the high-end performer level in terms of overall percentage of beverage sales. But typically, that is well above the average. Um, we try to hit uh, close to a uh, you know 25% um, goal. Uh, but most of our more casual concepts are kind of closer to that 20% range. Understood. Got it. Yeah, I mean, if I break it down now, like if, if there was a $100 check, which we would be paying, I, I, I can imagine it being realistic, like $25 would be towards, you know, like wine or beer or something like that. Exactly. Exactly. And you have to take into account that a lot of people are just kind of quick in and out and your lunch business will, will affect your percentage. Oh, yeah. If you're dinner only, you're going to have, you should be aiming for a higher percentage because dinner is going to be a higher percentage of beverage sales. But most of our concepts are doing lunch as well. Got it. Got it. So it's a, it's a, it's a amazing journey. I mean, you have, you know, you uh, must have started somewhere and you must have encountered uh, a lot of uh, challenges. Plus at the same time, you must have learned uh, working at different kind of establishments. And now you are one of the, I mean, if not the most important on-premise wine buyer in America. Uh, walk us through your journey, Brian. How did you start and, you know, why uh, are you where you are right now? Well, it's kind of, um, a lot of people fall into positions. It really wasn't that way for me. Uh, I grew up in Chicago. My my dad was a, a big fan of going out to eat and enjoying the food scene and like to travel. And, and, and I kind of fell in love with that aspect. And I think that living in a town like Chicago back then growing up, it was casual, it was approachable, it felt comfortable, it felt homey. Um, and so I always kind of loved the experience. And so I decided early on, that's what I was going to do for a living. I mean, there was really no moment in my life where I said, oh, I'm going to do something else. I mean, I went, started working in restaurants in high school when I was 15, worked my way up in a pretty high-end kind of uh, concept um, and, and private dining and so forth. And then uh, went to college and got a degree in hotel restaurant management because it's what I decided I wanted to do and pursued it and started working in hotels and getting that hospitality background, um, which I think is the first step is just understanding hospitality as a whole. And then it moved into restaurants. I opened up some concepts that were privately owned and then jumped in with a bigger company uh, such as this and grew from there. But it all started in the restaurant, working the crazy hours that you work, horrible hours, late nights, weekends, holidays, pretty much most of my life. And, and up until this position has been the big shift for me where it's been more at the corporate office level at our um, base restaurant support center. Um, but it's been a great journey, a lot of great opportunities. Um, but in terms of the beverage aspect, I did not know I was going to go specifically into being a beverage professional and being in the spot I am now. Um, I was just more focused on operations and I fell in love with wine. And even though it wasn't asked of me or expected or even really part of my day-to-day -day, uh, job when I was in the manager partner role or director role, I pursued it anyways because I loved wine. And so I Joined every organization I could. I started off with the International Sommelier Guild, became a CWE with Society of Wine Educators, which is a certified wine educator because I wanted to pass on my love to others. And then now I uh, just uh, this year passed the Master Sommelier Theory exam and am sitting the, uh, yeah, so I got that one under the belt and uh, next year we'll be sitting for the tasting portion of the MS exam. So to 
hopefully put the exclamation point on my my journey with uh, achieving the MS exam uh, next year is my my big final goal. And that's what ultimately pushed me into being asked or pinned down for the wine director role at Darden. Got it. So uh, how much is business uh, side of it? Like, have you learned the business principles or any any fundamentals or, you know, expect at that level, I'm sure you must be going through a lot of spreadsheets and numbers and, you know, it's just not the romantic wine side of the business. Uh, how do you, where do you learn all that from? Yeah. So, I mean, that's why I'm fortunate that I worked in restaurants because when you're a managing partner, you have to have your fingers on everything from your turnover. So, so you, yeah, you said you tried your own restaurant. So I'm sure you've, you felt the pain and you've restaurant. done everything. Yeah. Those haven't always worked out. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. Uh, yep. It's you a know, tough I, business. It's a very tough business. Some work, some don't. Hey, I was happy to have like a three-year, five-year run on a restaurant. I, I was, I'm happy with that. But ultimately, in the day, you have more losses than wins in most cases when it comes to doing your own business like that. Um, but I, but I, at the end of the day, you learn a lot from your your failures and opening restaurants that didn't work out or taking opportunities that didn't work out. I wouldn't trade for anything in the world because that's where I learned the most. Um, you can't get. You can't get that education from a college degree. You just can't, especially in this business. You've got to put the work in. You've got to diversify your experiences. You've got to push yourself to where you're constantly always a little bit scared of what's going to happen next or what might not work out. If you're not stressing a little bit, you're not growing. In this business, unfortunately, you can't just take an easy path and say, oh, I got this degree. Knock on a door. Let me in and pay me for it. If, if, if you don't have real, real world experience, it's going to be hard to translate that because I'll tell you in this position, even working for a large company like this, we kind of create things as we go based upon what we need. There isn't this, oh, let's just plug it in here and here we, we have this program that works and does it for us. We have to ultimately... Yeah, I think it's it's really like, you know, uh, what you really thought uh, when you were walking the floor, how it should be that drives up to the management and then, then you make that change and bring it back down. Exactly. And, and now my biggest fear is hey, have I become too much of an office jockey where I've lost touch with reality and what's going on in my restaurants day to day? So I make it a point, like even, you know, right now it's the busy holiday season, so I'm leaving the restaurants alone and trying to stay out of their way. But, you know, I, I'll start working in the restaurants uh, a couple shifts a week starting in January just to kind of get that, that sense of place back and see firsthand what our management team goes through and what we're asking to do. And are the expectations real? You have to have this line of sight as to how things can really function and have that feel for it. So that's always important too. You never want to lose that edge as well. Yeah. Yeah. Super amazing. I mean, uh, I think uh, your, your title is Brian, uh, you know, as what I can see from the signature was wine strategy. Darden, right? So yeah, explain me, uh, what does that I- I include? Like, you know, I, I, till what I understand the definition of strategy is, uh, you know, a, uh, working towards a goal and uh, the, the map towards reaching that goal, right? So let's say 2020, how does your strategy planning look like? Yeah, so I mean, that's exactly, I think the title sums it up, what the expectation was when I jumped on board, that it wasn't, hey, just come here and be a sommelier and pick really cool geeky wines that you love. That's not that, you know, there's a small element of that, but, you know, there's a lot of storytelling involved, but at the end of the day, it's about building a plan. It's about growing the business. 
about getting buy-in. True. It's like, for example, let's say, you know, how we discussed, like it's 22% of your revenue should be this. But now let's say 2020, uh, you guys decide it's 26%. Now the question is literally how, and that's the strategy. Exactly. It's a lot of brainstorming and having actionable plans that are projected out and then followed up on consistently and then justifying your existence at the end of the, of the year or the program to say, look what I did or didn't do and taking that ownership. So can you break us down? Like, is that location based, uh, uh, category based, uh, beverage based? Like how, how just on a top level, how does it look like? You know, what, what would be the first two, three pages of that plan? At my level, it's, it's, it's brand based. It's about the specific concept, overall performance. We're going to have winners and losers by different markets as always. And the restaurants have the brand. You meaning the restaurant brand, like for example, uh, Capital Grill will contribute this much uh, exactly. versus Seasons 52 will contribute. Okay. Exactly. I have to look at each concept as its own business. So I don't get to come in and just say darting as a whole. Yeah. I'm judged by that, but I have to report to a brand president that oversees each brand. And that's my boss who I have to make happy with my goals. That will feed into the overall. So you have a lot of bosses. <laughs> yeah, I do have a lot. Everybody really is kind of your boss from the director of marketing to the presidents to, to supply, head of supply to, of course, head of Darden. Um, ultimately, it all feeds into that, the Darden umbrella. But at the end of the day, each brand is measured independently and has to succeed. And so we look at each year. So we do a year plan. When we're, when we're this big, you can't, you can't really go freaking out on numbers that are week to week. You, you look at them, but you have to understand that there's a lot of seasonality and ups and downs that are different for every market and put that in perspective. So you have to, to kind of test things out, give things their due fair uh, time to pan out and see how it works. So really, we're judged annually. Um, I'm paid annually based upon our performance. Um, and, you know, we, we develop goals together with the brand, with the, you know, the fine head of finance for that brand, the head of marketing, and of course the president for that brand. And we say, this is what we're going to do, how we're going to do it. I put things in a projection and then we kind of measure it as it goes, but ultimately at the end of the year is where we determine how it, how it performed. And then we have to take a lot in economics. So the thing I'm dealing with right now that have upset and changed and disrupted our plans a bit are the whole EU tariffs that are going on. And then now we're really concerned with the whole champagne and Italy being included in these these tariffs, which are massive. And so I'm working very, very heavily on the supply side to try to secure stateside supply to not be affected. And how am I changing things out? Like a provincial rosé might have to go New World or I'm going to have to work with that that producer in Provence to secure some product stands tariff um, in order to maintain. But I can never go to the brand and say, hey, guys, we've got a tariff. It's going to cost us 25% more to operate this year. That's not going to work. I've got to find a way to work around it, and there's no excuse. So we're going to perform better year over year no matter what's going on in the economy. It's up to me to find ways to work yeah. around it and, and make a successful year over year when it comes to, to wine and beverage sales. So it, it's, it's, got it. it's a, what, What's your overall trend? Like you see uh, beer, uh spirits and wine what, what category you see still growing the fastest among those three it's spirits that are growing the quickest by far um the spirit category oh, okay. is really impressive and and look as a wine guy yeah you know there's that certain part of my pride that's like oh, i want wine to growing uh -huh. you know but <laughs> at the end of the, the day um i'm happy to see spirits growing i see a lot of cocktail culture happening as well these it's, days. It's, it's the whole 
cocktail culture. I think it's the millennial generation coming in. I mean, look, you have a shift. I think that every generation that gets settled in, gets older, has money, pays off their school loan debt is going to be very similar to the prior generation. They might drink a little bit different than their parents, but they'll get back into wine at a high level and wine consumption is still strong. It's, but it has flattened out and teared off a little bit, losing that share to spirits, but spirits really delivers a lot as a margin. So financially, it's not necessarily a bad thing to have spirits dominating a little bit more uh, because spirits generally have a much lower cogs. Uh, you can uh, work them into some really nice cocktail programs that demand a really good price point for a really nice, well-made drink. Um, and so, you know, our guests are willing to pay for for premium spirits and premium cocktails. That's not a bad thing necessarily. Um, it's just our own pride that says, hey, I'm, I'm a wine forward kind of guy. So, of course, I want to see wine growing heavily, but it has flattened off. Uh, beer has taken a big dive, but a lot of that is just oversaturation of the craft beer market. Um, that's, you know, you're going to have its lumps, ups and downs. Beer will, will probably settle out at some point. But the one thing that is growing greatly is spirits right now. So we're very progressive in our cocktail programs and developing uh, savvy spirit programs for our brands as well. Nice, nice. What's the most challenging uh, part of your job, Brian? I mean, I'm sure there are some things which are really hard to solve. What would that be? For me, it's getting buy-in. You know, uh, you can come up with all the great ideas in the world, but if you don't know how to sell them and get buy-in, it doesn't matter. Um, so um, I'm, can you elaborate like buying meaning, uh, I, what I can understand is you buying or you, you, you having customers, uh, buying your product. It's more internal. It's the buy-in with your teams. Ultimately for me, oh, understood. yeah, for ultimately for me, if someone comes to me with a great idea or a great wine or a great program we can do with their wines, I ultimately have to go and sell that just as strongly, if not even more so than the person my supplier is selling it to me. I have to go to the brand and say, hey, here's a great idea. How can we do it? How can we work it? I have to sell that harder sometimes than the people actually doing the sales salesmanship. Um, then from there, you have to follow it all the way down to where there's the moment of truth, which is in the restaurant where your service team has to sell that idea for that brand. And then you have hundreds of restaurants doing it that you have to all get their buy-in on, their support, and their interest and passion for it in order to make it successful. So you can have something that on paper is just like black and white, this is going to be successful. But if you don't execute it properly down to the restaurants, train them, get them to effectively get understand its purpose, get behind it, it's not going to succeed, no matter how good it is. Now, this is, for example, you're talking about wine. So I can, I'm trying to imagine what kind of example would that be? Like, let's say you have the summer and you you want a champagne month is that like a, a concept you come up with and then you have to roll that concept in all the restaurants sort of as much as you can or you know whichever way but is that is that what you're trying to say yeah exactly like just to take off that champagne uh, example you mentioned so we're currently doing that actually we're we're featuring Vov Clicquot for the holidays at Eddie V's Prime Seafood okay and we're pouring not only Vov Clicquot but we're pouring the vintage Vov we're pouring the rosé and we're pouring a very expensive Vov Clicquot uh, La Grand Dame, which is their flagship Tête de Cuvée. It is not a cheap bottle. It'll cost... So most, uh, of, most of the friction, uh, understood, I, I got the point, most of the friction comes from internal staff not hand-selling that particular item. 
it uh, can be. Where, where it, is the actual problem? Yeah, it can be. So you you have you have the director of operations and your VPs, things like that, that give a you know, and you, and you have managers within the restaurant who are paid on the performance of the restaurant who get a little nervous when I say, hey guys, you have to sell uh you know this bottle that costs well over a hundred bucks by the glass, and we're going to pour all four of these by the glass. And they have to consider, well, how can I sell through all this expensive champagne without it going bad? Because you pop a bottle of champagne, it's only going to last, you know, maybe two days. So you really have to have some volume there. So it's a scary proposition to throw out there to a restaurant, ask them to perform. And not only that, I mean, you might be in Miami where it works very well. And then we have a location in Cleveland where it doesn't. And so you have to kind of make it work for the brand and get them to understand how it really promotes what we're trying to do and say what we're about. It's part of our, our culture. We're going to be known for selling top-notch champagne at this, at this brand. And we want our guests to, to know that. And there's a value in that equity that we're building. And so that's yeah, you got to look at the experience uh, part of it and connect it all. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, it's just like anything, if someone's really passionate about it and they love what you're doing, they're going to go out and sell it. And if they don't, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to pander it out. They're not going to really promote it. They're not going to get their teams buy in. And then it kind of. No, I hear you loud and clear. In fact, today I just wrote an article and just posted on my personal LinkedIn, which was the most important uh, person in the wine sales supply chain is the wine rep. So it's pretty much the same thing. That five minute conversation that happens, uh, you know, between the wine rep and the retailer is it. I mean, you know, either a winery's brand is going to go into that account or never is that going to happen so if that if that sommelier is going to recommend to their customers it's going to happen your whole thing works <laughs> but if if it's is just not in the mood nothing's going to work yeah it's a fine line like i i greatly respect all of our wine professionals in the restaurants and they are they're very savvy and they do a lot of their own great programs and wine dinners and you know even though i have a very large core wine program they still have a lot of freedom to build up the rest of their wine list and so there's a lot of pressure on them and they know what they're doing. And, and uh, at the end of the day, everybody wants to be successful. So you just have to get them to also buy into what you're trying to do as well while supporting their ideas. And, and it's a kind of a mutual back and forth fine line. You don't want to be, uh, you know, trying to stamp out what they're trying to do as well. You want to encourage their growth and what they're trying to do while at the same time supporting your ideas. Um, so, you know, it, that's, I find that the hardest thing because it takes the most uh, amount of your time. It's a lot of follow up. It's a lot true, of and it's it's a big, big uh, like you know you have to have a lot of uh, you have to win a lot of people. I mean, basically, it's a big uh, you know it's pretty much putting an idea into execution. Exactly, it would be a lot easier if I could go down the street and go meet with the manager and talk to the teams and 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 tell them what we're doing firsthand. But you know, I can't. It's not easy for me to get from Orlando, Florida, where I'm based at our office, to Seattle, Washington, very quickly, and then back to New York. You know. So there's no way you're going to be able to visit all, you know, 58 Capitol Grill locations to talk about a program face to face. You have to do it through a monthly call, through training guides, through training videos. And it's there's there's never so I was just going to come on the training uh, part of things, Brian, like, you know, uh, what what can what tips can you share? Not only for your own wine directors, uh, but like other overall wine directors, like, what, you know, how can they increase wine sales in their restaurants? What have you seen work? You know, I think that from it's going to be different for everybody based upon your size and concept. If you are a couple of restaurants, there's a totally different approach. And I wouldn't necessarily recommend the same kind of investment and involvement we're doing on a national program. But we do always work 
closely with our training teams that oversee each brand and work with them to develop training tools. So first and foremost, you have to give them the tool to utilize in the restaurant so that a manager in the restaurant can pick that up and train the team with it. And that's going to be a video that we always do. We do server, server cards that go in their server books, posters in the back service alley so they're always seeing what the wines are and what the program is. We do leader's guides. Uh, we have our suppliers who are great partners that represent these wines nationally have their educators go into our restaurants on our behalf to taste them on the wines, to train them on the wines, tell the story. But at the end of the day, what it's really about is the story. Um, you've got to be a great storyteller. You have to get them to be interested in it. That's how people are drinking wine today. They want they want something juicy, pardon the pun when we're talking about wine, but they want something they can grab onto and understand. And then they have to know why they're selling it, what's in it for them. How does this drive business? How does it how does it satisfy our guests more? How does it define us from the competition? How does it make them money at the end of the day? And then, uh, you know, you have to give them kind of really quick, easy one-liners as well. Something that they, you have to kind of, you have to manage the message. What are they messaging to our guests? You have to have message that. And so you have to define that for them and how you want it spieled. What, what is it that they're saying to the guest? Um, hundred percent agreed. In fact, I say the same thing, like wineries need to have that one liner for the reps and sommeliers every time. There's just that one line which they can tell the consumers. Exactly. And when you're this large, something, you know, from a, for, for, of interest for suppliers would be, you know, when we're looking at a program and we're partnering with somebody to do a program, we're really looking at suppliers that we know can execute and support it on all fronts and training and supporting the restaurants getting into the restaurants, getting in the product they need and helping us get the team buy-in and education is essential that we will sometimes pick a program solely on the, ability, the supplier's ability to execute those elements. Um, that's as important yeah, I, as the I mean, uh, that was actually my follow-up uh, sort of question where, you know, uh, what sort of programming and logistical requirement, you know, you have for some brands to qualify for corporate placements? You know, like, like do you expect... Uh, them to be nationally distributed, let's say Southerns or Glazers Network, or what sort of minimum requirement is there even to qualify for them to even have a meeting, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on the size of the program. For something like just, hey, you're going to get a great by-the-glass placement that we're going to pour on, say, a Coravin, you know, it might just be a winery direct and, and look, it might just be, hey, send them some training materials or I'll do the training materials myself. But if it's something like the limited time offer with a lot of promotions behind it and it's guest driving and there's a difference between just having a great wine on the menu that a guest is going to say, hey, that's great. I'm going to buy up to it. And they're already in the restaurant anyways, versus trying to get guests to your restaurant. That's a whole nother level. That's where you need somebody on a national level who has people in the field located in all your major markets that within maybe one or two weeks time have the ability to hit every restaurant face to face and talk about the program, do training, bring in, you know, an educator, um, and, and be a, a local point of contact for those restaurants when they need help or a supply issue comes up. Um, if you don't have people in the field on a national level that can get things done quickly, um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a hard sell for you to get into a, a big national program that we're putting a lot of marketing dollars behind to get guests in the door. And once you promote something and guests show up specifically for that program and you don't have the product or the, the service team doesn't know about it or can't effectively talk about it, that's a big failure. You can't have any best steps. So that's where we do need people that have great bandwidth across the nation. 
Amazing, Anderson. So let me, let me just break this down for our audience. So what exactly uh, we're talking here, guys, is there are two types of scenarios. It is a cash 22 position. One is either you build Kendall Jackson where everyone knows and they're ordering and they, the restaurants don't have to do anything or you support and you do a lot of stuff and you're national and you push and your feet on the ground and you do everything before you even present a meeting. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like when you look at somebody like, say, you know, take Jackson family, for instance, you know, they, they have a great, uh, you know, they have a very deep team of, of educators, master sommeliers, uh, you know, supply team analytics, uh, you know, supply channels that you just don't have. a yeah, lot. They're of like partners. I mean, they, they help you solve uh, some problems which you guys can rely upon. Right. Yeah. They can better execute a large scale national program at times. And it doesn't mean we don't cut. We, we automatically discount people that don't have that necessarily. But they really have to prove that. They yeah, have. I mean, we're just saying it's a requirement. It's it's more of it's it's more of an expectation because you have to feel for the restaurant as well. You know, exactly. you just can't supply the wine and forget about it. I mean, you got to understand their business. Exactly, exactly. And you know, you have people locally in the market that understand how it works in Dallas versus how it might work in, say, you know, Orlando, Florida. Two different markets completely, and they. And I think, it, it, in all honesty, I mean, Brian, you know, uh, it makes it easy for you to even work with an educated supplier. We're not saying you're smaller or, or big, but we're just saying educated supplier. If they understand, you know, what all goes behind the science of a corporate placement, then it much it, the, your job is much easier. Exactly, exactly, and you know, one of the fun parts of my job is finding some small little producer that's doing some one-off stuff, and I've even helped. Some of these producers get distribution so that we can have it in our restaurants if it's something i really fall in love with but it's not going to be the wine that we're promoting in a national program to drive people to the door you know there's just too many variabilities you know that could come with that so got it got it so i think you say you know one of the things you said you you storytelling is i mean we've been hearing this term storytelling is uh, a way to sort of hand sell and uh, things of that nature. So in an interview, when you're interviewing, or you may have a manual, like a standard operating procedure where you identify some skills for sommeliers, you know, uh, do you test them uh, that are they a good storyteller or what kind of skills are you looking for when you are interviewing for, you know, sommeliers? Yeah, I mean, it, right now it's, it's a good problem to have that we have such a, a low unemployment rate. Uh, but in all honesty, for the for the hospitality business and restaurant business, you, you kind of want some unemployment rates to go up because it's tough. You're fighting for every person right now. The qualified people are, you know, they're, they're far and few between. And so what we really look for is people that want to grow with us. So the first thing we're, we're, we're testing for is people skills first. Are they a people person? Are they someone who can put the team before themselves? That's most important. Um, if there's someone that's coming in with some wine game, they might be a certified sommelier. We have a lot of sommeliers in our restaurants. Um, we need a sommelier that's, that's not about them, but about the team and looking to make other people sommeliers. They, we want people who will spark more passion for wine, for service. And, um, you know, certifications are great, but it's not the most important thing. We want people who want to grow with us and want to help others grow with them. Um, and that's, None of that is wine-based questions. We're not asking them to name, you know, give me all the, you know, the communes north to south of Burgundy. I don't think that comes Yeah, it's still the basic hospitality uh, characteristics, right, that you're looking for, like the server characteristic, like how humble, how likable. Exactly. If, I mean, if you look within our company, I mean, our, the presidents of our brands were all people that worked within the restaurants, either as managers. Some of them started off as servers. 
some of our directors of marketing were hostesses, you know? So these are people that we're growing to build our business because if you don't have bench strength, it's hard to grow your business. It's hard to open a restaurant if you can't count on a manager and move them from one restaurant to another and have an experienced manager opening a very important restaurant in new market. So really we, we're looking for bench strength, people we can build and grow um, and we'll support them on anything they need. If we need them to get more wine knowledge, we'll give them that while they're in the door. But first we wanna see them be someone that's about hospitality first and somebody who's gonna be a team player and, and work with others and, and kind of drive that passion and build the culture. Um, so I know that. So you're trying of, to avoid churn rates, basically. You're looking for long term, uh, as much as you can, right? Exactly. I know that's kind of a broad answer, and and I wish it, it sounds easy when you say it, but it's so hard. I've been in the restaurants trying to staff new restaurants. No, I, I get, I, I get. You're, you're looking for soft skills, basically. You're just looking for exactly. a good person. <laughs> exactly. Get get a good get person that. first. That's willing to learn it, put the time and effort in, and you'll be much happier. Uh, three, six months later than getting someone who's already super experienced that's going to leave you because they weren't made to feel like a, a superstar enough, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, Absolutely, it makes sense. Yeah. Uh, what about, uh, Brian, let's, let's add some value for the restaurant professionals here. Just, uh, you know, one question for them. Uh, what are some programming or promotional ideas that have worked, you know, to increase wine sales? Uh, you know, how do you market some programs like wine by glass or, you know, some tactical advice? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the program we're probably most known for, let's, I mean, it's, there's a few for brands. So let's take the capital grill. Um, we're doing a program called generous pour. Uh, the generous pour is again, a great opportunity to tell a story. And I think that's what people really buy into. So it's an annual summer wine event where you can come in, you can try seven great wines, but you're not forced to a wine dinner experience per se. You know, you go to a wine dinner, you're forced to sit at a table next to somebody maybe you don't know. Uh, you wait for it to start when everybody shows up. Someone comes around, talks about the wine, pours it for you per course. You don't get to order what you want off the menu. It's kind of set. It's a little stuffier. Those are fine. I mean, I don't have anything against those kinds of wine dinners. But with the generous pour, it's a very casual process where you can come in, order anything off the menu, the service team is really well trained on pairing a specific producer or a specific theme of wines, a flight with whatever you order, and you can try all of them and kind of go back to the ones you like the most. So it's a really amazing program. And so, you know, last year we've, we've, we've worked with a lot of different um, single wineries. We've done different programs. We focused on, you know, women of the vine in the past where it's specific women producers that have taken over. We've, focused on new generations of winemakers. We focused on specific appellations, um, you know, and I really like the ones where you get to focus on a specific wine producer and someone who's maybe kind of well-known, but people haven't had the opportunity to try all their wine side by side to understand what that producer's about. And I can't give away what we're going to be doing next year, unfortunately, but <laughs> I'm really excited yeah. for um, <laughs> Got it. partnering with an excellent wine producer that's really well-known. and you know, having them go out and be able to talk about the different uh, wines so that guests can understand what they're doing. So that's, that's a program that has drives a ton of people to our door. I mean, anyone that comes in our restaurant, that's what they order. 80% of the time they sit down, they're ordering the generous poor flight. That's pretty amazing. Got pretty, it. But pretty, apart from the restaurant in, in, inside, like how do you promote that outside the restaurant? Like, you know, digital marketing or uh, signs on the windows? Uh, what other things do you do? 
that's you know we're we don't we don't put billboards up that's not that kind of a brand so it's all digital it's directly reaching out to our our guest base that we've collected um you know they've signed up to receive information uh, through open table reservations as well and we put it out there and we do a lot of social media we work with a third party uh marketing company and we'll we'll host dinners and they'll do some you know, I'll host an actual example of the dinner. They'll come in and review it and they'll post the review. So, so do you like data mine? I mean, let's say there are this uh, 1 million people who dined. Uh, but do you know, like of that 40,000, are this people who drank drunk wine or are beer people? Do you have that sort of data as well? Oh, yeah, we do. Yeah. Yeah. We, oh, okay. nice. yeah, we track the preference of every single item on our menu that we sell in every restaurant and all our programs and know where, know how it performs and how it does. You know, ultimately, at the end of the day, we use those numbers to see what our guests want. And you have to pay attention to that and ebb and flow with it and make sure we're delivering what they want. So we know where our average price point is, what our average bottle price is, how a certain program performs by each location. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's... What about the deco? You know, uh, you know, how do you work around the deco to create that ambience to drive wine sales? Um, in terms of driving wine sales, like if we look work through that data what we're really seeing is, are we having ups and downs? So it's really about year over year comparisons. Um, we've, a lot of our programs aren't new. We've done them for many years. So the generous port, for example, is 11 years in now. Um, so we will look at how it performs year over year. And ultimately one of the main things too is, you know, how is it performing on social media? How are the clicks, you know, how, you know, what we, we have a, what's called an electronic guest survey where we actually, get surveys back from the guests after they dine with us as to how they felt about it. And we track all of that and we will get thousands of them. And it gives us a good idea of where we are. Now, if you're a smaller restaurant, um, standalone restaurant, it's a little more challenging. You just have to kind of do it um, based upon your own internal numbers, but also be on the floor and talking to the guest. And we don't have that, that luxury. So we really do have to find other ways to get that information. And that's usually through, through direct feedback, through, you know, online surveys and tokenization, which is a whole other world that I don't completely fully understand myself. But, um, yeah, it's interesting to see what, what what's going on. And each program is is kind of has its own goals to hit year over year. Mm-hmm. All right. Super, Brian. So one last question, uh, just for I had I was very interested in this personally. So how do you measure wine performance? Let's say you have this you know, 10 wines in your menu. You know, uh, how frequently do you measure that? Like, let's say every month you will see which were the uh, worst two and what, how do you know it's the worst two and what do you do about it? Yeah, so that we have, a, every restaurant typically has a point of sale system. That's that little computer that they ring the order in on, right? Uh, you see nowadays the handheld ones a lot. I've seen those a lot, uh, the handheld ones, but that essentially it's all the same thing. It's a point of sale system. And from there, we track the sale of each item. And we have what's a preference and a preference number is just basically how, how its percentage overall is preferred over another item, how it sits within the category. Uh, and then we read the margin as well. So you might have something that's a lower preference item. Maybe you have a very high end Cabernet that you sell for $30 a glass, right? And it maybe, of course, isn't going to have the same preference of, uh, as an entry level glass of Prosecco, but the margin on it's very high because it's a higher end item, higher cost, but higher margin. 
you take a little bit, you get a little bit more reward at the risk. And you'll say, well, that's a better performer than something that's selling more because of what it brings to the table at the end of the day. So you have to look at it. From yeah, it's like dollar contribution, you know, correct. Yeah, you, and you want to make the guests happy. So it's not always about the dollar either. You have a lot of guests that like Prosecco. You want to make them happy. So you have to make sure you have your high preference and your high margin items equally balanced and make sure that they're all doing their part. And that that's how you basically do it at the end of the day. And then and then you look for better wines that can maybe. So within within each category, you will have sort of you'll break down the entire thing, right? Like you'll have a high margin. I mean, high. You know, you you'll have internal categories, and then within that, you will have your best and worst items. Exactly, exactly. And if there's something that's not Got performing it. well, that's just something we have to consider another opportunity for um, another wine, or just do away with that category altogether. And how do you blow it off? Like you you, you sort of have banquet or weddings or parties or. What's the best way to uh, sell non-performing inventory? You know, that's a tough one. And it often it comes down to the restaurant, unfortunately. But, you know, when we do announce that we're doing a deletion, you know, we have to, again, train on wines that we're not going to be carrying anymore, which sounds kind of odd. But you have to train on the sell-through focus and we make it part of a daily pre-shift. So we'll say, hey, guys, here's our delete list. Here's what needs to come off the list. Our goal is to sell through it in three months. And... Here's some day, and daily rewards your staff. Have a have a have a, a meal for the the top performer. A bottle of wine you can provide your top performer who sells through these wines, and uh, just try to burn it off through through just calling it out every day. Here's a focus, and here's the reward if you can sell through it. Yeah, you know, uh, understood. It's pretty straightforward. Like just hand selling and incentives. Yeah, got the point. Yep. Yep. Super, Brian. Uh, amazing. Thanks for the insights. I mean, have you got anything else uh, you would want to share uh, and cover? No, really. I think, you know, at the end of the day, to me, wine and beverage is all about culture. Uh, if you have a beverage culture, you're always winning. And I think that that's the long battle we're always trying to go for. So to me, it's always just about trying to build the people up within the restaurant to do the best they can and support them in doing it. And that's kind of what I, I at the end of the day, that's what my job really is summed up. You know, even though there's a lot of technicality. I think you just reminded me of Buffalo Wild Wings by saying that they have created this beer culture and wings is the secondary thing now. <laughs> exactly. There you go. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Great talking to you. Thanks a lot, Brian. Uh, amazing. Have a good rest of the year. So guys, hope you found value in this. Try to dissect everything that we said and it will help you pitch the national restaurant buyer better. Write down every single point and work your business plan around those metrics and try to pitch that more than anything else. If you haven't yet subscribed, please subscribe to the podcast. And again, one final time, an announcement for Sommelier's Choice Awards. The submission for 2020 Sommelier's Choice Awards is now open. If you are a wine brand trying to get traction in the on-premise US market, you need to enter in Sommelier's Choice Awards. Thank you. Enjoy. Enjoy.